0: Room of the Washington
1: Post. This is Cleve Hootson with
0: the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 9th. Today, the challenges that await President-elect Joe Biden as he prepares to take office and a historic moment for the vice presidency. In the two days since Joe Biden was projected to become the next president of the United States, there has been this split screen in America. Some people celebrating, cheering, honking, literally dancing in the streets. Others who were disappointed, angry, anxious about the future. And now that split screen is Biden's biggest challenge how to bring together a country that is so profoundly divided.
2: — My fellow Americans —— You heard that on Saturday night, him sort of talking directly to Trump supporters and telling them to, let's give each other a chance.
3: — I can act like, for all those of you who voted for President Trump, I understand the disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple times myself. But now,
0: let's give each other a chance. Matt Weiser is a political reporter for The Post. And one of the things he was looking for in the president-elect's victory speech was some sense of how Biden will begin to shift
2: the course of the government and the country. The speech had a lot of different notes in it. And you could almost see the transition for Biden from a candidate to a president-elect in the course of the speech. I think one of the major things that he wanted to do was to signal to people that he is now the president-elect and in part because President Trump still has not accepted the results. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. The other kind of things that I think he's looking to forecast is the change in policy, the principles that are important to Joe Biden and return back to what the Obama administration left Donald Trump with in early 2017.
3: Americans have called upon us to marshal the forces of decency, the forces of fairness, to marshal the forces of science and the forces of hope in the great battles of our time. The battle to control the virus, the battle to build prosperity, the battle to secure your family's health care, the battle to achieve racial justice and root out systemic racism in this country.
0: How are we starting to see the gears beginning to turn on the transition actually
2: moving forward? So there's been a lot of work on the Biden side for months in terms of people meeting. They have a book of all of the pledges that Biden has made during the course of his campaign to try to figure out which things to do first and how to go about governing. And that process is really picking up now. He is really moving forward this week Beginning to make decisions about his chief of staff, beginning to build out the rest of his personnel staff and beginning to think about cabinet secretaries, which those announcements probably won't be made for a couple of weeks. But that process is going to begin right now.
0: And what do we know so far about what Biden's transition team is
2: actually shaping up to look like, like who's on it so far and who are potentials? So a lot of it's being run by Ted Kaufman, one of Biden's longest confidants who's been with him since 1972, was his chief of staff for most of the time when Biden was a senator. And so Kaufman is kind of running a lot of the show. But I think the question is who else is going to come in? And that's, I think what a lot of different groups are looking at. You know, Black Lives Matter activists are looking for a meeting with Joe Biden. Liberals and the Bernie Sanders wing of the party is gonna be looking to see who he appoints to different roles in his transition and in his administration.
0: And it seems like there's a lot of like reading of tea leaves here, right? That even though it's just, it's a transition team, so theoretically it's temporary, that people are already trying to glean, okay, like what kind of president will Biden be? What will be his priorities? And like which people will be his priorities and that they're trying to get a signal from that just from who is appointed to these positions on the transition team.
2: Yeah, I think it's Elizabeth Warren who has the line that personnel is policy. And they view that as a big marker of who he's going to appoint to these different roles and who's going to have the prominent voices within his administration. So how
0: anxious do you think the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is getting right now about this question of whether or not they're going to have a seat at the table?
2: I mean, they've always been a little bit distrustful of Biden and some of his more centrist and more moderate instincts. And I think they're also nervous because Democrats didn't take back the Senate majority, at least not yet, depending on results in Georgia. But there wasn't a sort of a, a wave of Democrats coming in, which would give Biden a little bit more space to cater to the liberals in the party. And now he's going to have to listen to the moderates in both parties, because the Senate's going to be so closely divided. And you had yesterday on Sunday, Elizabeth Warren tweeting and kind of framing a little bit of this, where she said, What happens next matters. In the past, efforts to build unity and consensus in Washington have too often meant turning over the keys to giant corporations and their lobbyists. We can't let that happen again. And so the message there from Warren and, you know, her supporters is we're watching you, Joe Biden. (laughs) We're going to be watching what happens as you talk about unity and consensus, what that's going to actually look like and what policy that's going to shape. And so it's kind of a subtle nudge at this point. But depending on how Biden and his team handles the next couple of weeks, you know, the nudge could become sharper in terms of how Warren and Bernie Sanders and the liberals in the party look at what Biden is trying to do.
0: So, Matt, we talked briefly last week about some of the steps that are routine but also important in the transition process and that there are things that at least typically happen in terms of freeing up federal money to be able to start the transition and start communications with various departments in the government. Can you walk through more of the details of what that process is supposed to look like and to what extent we are or are not seeing that in the transition so far?
2: So typically in the hours after an election is called, there is what's called an ascertainment of the results. So there's this government entity called the General Services Administration, and it's a pretty sleepy but important part of the federal government that operates federal buildings, does contracts, and oversees a lot of federal personnel, but they also have this quirky role in ascertaining the results of an election. And the head of that agency basically has to say, who won. And based on that decision, it jumpstarts the full transition process, creating the pathway for the outgoing administration to cooperate with the incoming administration. It's all on the shoulders of the current GSA administrator whose name is Emily Murphy. Now, she is a Trump appointee, a political appointee, so kind of owes her job to President Trump, who is still falsely claiming that he won the election. So, so far, she has not started that process.
0: And do we know why this administrator hasn't officially kind of called the election yet or jump-started that process? Like, is there a concern that this might be something that she doesn't do in the days to come?
2: There is starting to be some concern. She herself has not spoken. Her her spokeswoman has told us that she will continue to abide by and fulfill all requirements under the law. But they're not providing much context in terms of how— She plans to determine the results of the election, given that most of the country has determined that Joe Biden is the winner. And it raises some questions. I mean, the formal vote of the Electoral College does not happen until December 14th. So that's when the results are technically completely finalized for the election.
0: I'm sure that part of that is a concern of, like, is there a world in which the Biden transition team would have to wait until December 15th to be able to get some of these, like, logistical processes put in place to be able to actually start a transition?
2: That's exactly right. The last time that we've had such a lengthy transition was in 2000. George W. Bush does not begin his transition until mid-December. But in that case, you had the results of the election actually up in the air based on a couple hundred votes in one state. In this case, a lot would have to change in order for Trump to be declared the winner. So there's a difference there. But that's part of why we have the current transition laws and and laws were changed after that 2000 result, because Congress decided that it wanted presidents to have more time to begin their transition. There was a sort of a consensus that George W. Bush didn't have the necessary time to get security briefings and, you know, understand what was happening with global problems that they should have been prepared for when they entered the administration.
0: But I also think that it's worth pointing out that the Trump administration doesn't necessarily have a good track record on putting stock in the transition process. It was very widely reported in 2016 that they sort of had this kind of improvised, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants attitude toward the transition from Obama to them, and all these stories about Obama officials trying to get in touch with them, calling Trump Tower, being ping-ponged through this building, and, like, not actually being able to get in touch with the people that they needed to talk to about how to orchestrate the transition. So I wonder if that indicates that we can't necessarily expect that the Trump administration is going to be super helpful in this.
2: I mean, it's exactly right. And I mean, the Obama administration officials who were outgoing at the time prepared thick briefing booklets. They had office space for Trump officials to come that went pretty unutilized. And I do think that the way that the transition process is unfolding, at least so far, is indicative of the different philosophies of President Trump and President-elect Biden. Biden puts a lot of faith in the various wheels of government, whereas President Trump doesn't. And so he, I think, doesn't have any stop in sort of this transition process. And for him, it's mostly symbolic and he doesn't want to yield. You know, He doesn't want to admit that he's lost the election. And so therefore we're, we're sort of at an impasse at the moment.
0: I also think this is such an interesting moment for the Biden campaign because of the length of the period of this campaign. I'm sure that the priorities, the intentions and promises that they had in their minds when they started this are very different from what their priorities are going to have to be right now. And I wonder what that has looked like in terms of having to reshuffle goals and objectives to meet this very surprising and strange moment that we're in right now.
2: I agree. And I think that there was kind of a moment in his campaign where they went through a little bit of a reworking of his priorities and his agenda throughout the summer, where they came up with what they call Build Back Better. You know, It's a whole policy agenda that's kind of aimed at the economy and health concerns around the coronavirus. And that's really taking the prominence in all of their transition planning. And it's no mistake that the first thing that he does as president-elect is today with the coronavirus task force.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. As I said on Saturday, I'm humbled by the trust and confidence the American people have placed in me and Vice President-elect Harris. And we're ready to get to work addressing the needs of the American people.
1: President-elect Joe Biden announced his transition coronavirus task force early on Monday.
3: Today, that work begins. It starts with doing everything possible to get the COVID-19 under control so that we can reopen our businesses safely and sustainably, resume our lives, put put this pandemic behind us.
1: And it's a group made up entirely of doctors and health experts who he said are going to help him craft health and economic policies to bring the virus under control as soon as he takes office. My name is Yasmina Talib, and I'm a health policy reporter for The Washington Post. You know, he made his almost his entire campaign a referendum on President Trump's handling of the virus and promised stronger leadership and more forceful science based leadership. So I think this announcement so soon after his his victory was called is to signal to people that this is going to be his first and immediate priority and that he is not going to wait to take office on January 20th to begin addressing the pandemic, especially as we're in this really crucial, deadly stretch that experts have said cannot wait until January.
0: So who is on the coronavirus task force and what does that tell us about the strategy that they have for addressing this problem?
1: So the task force is made up of all doctors and health experts, which I think is a very clear signal that this is going to be a science-based approach, which is, of course, a, a contrast to what President Trump has been offering the last several months, where the economy and economic considerations have really been the top priority. So you have a pretty diverse set of people, you know, just among the co-chairs of the task force is quite a bit of diversity. You have Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General under President Obama. You Of David Kessler, who was an FDA commissioner under Presidents George H.W. Bush and President Clinton. And you have Marcella Nunez-Smith, who is a doctor at Yale whose research focuses on health disparities and health equity. So I think even just the co-chairs and then the, the rest of the task force is quite a diverse makeup, is a signal that not only are they going to be looking seriously at the most pressing issues related to the virus, but also its disproportionate impact on people of color.
0: And what do we know so far about what they intend to propose and what they can actually do to get the pandemic under control?
1: Well, I think one thing to make clear is they're not going to turn an aircraft carrier on a dime here. This is a really, really difficult problem they're confronting. We're at more than 100,000 cases a day right now. That's only expected to get worse over the next several weeks. And on a lot of days, more than 1,000 people are dying. So they're inheriting the worst crisis since the Great Depression. And of course, you have the economic crisis on top of that. So, I mean, we know that Joe Biden's priorities are to massively ramp up testing. Um, You know, experts are saying we need about 5 to 10 million tests a day Right now, we're at about 1 million, maybe a little bit more tests a day. They have a $25 billion vaccine distribution plan. They want to address shortages of personal protective equipment. And I'm sure we'll see more come out as this task force, you know, really gets going and studies the problems and the current response.
0: What do you imagine will be some of the major roadblocks that this task force will be facing?
1: Well, I think the biggest political realities that they need to figure out how to deal with is that the elections showed this is a deeply divided country. You know, more than 70 million people voted for President Trump. The victory was pretty narrow in a lot of states. So you do have more than 70 million people who voted for, you know, President Trump's approach to the virus, which was to really loosen restrictions to in many ways downplay the threat or who don't see it as as big a threat. Um, and I know that one of the things that is most important to them is to try to get everyone in the country to start wearing masks.
3: We can save tens of thousands of lives if everyone would just wear a mask for the next few months. Not Democrat or Republican lives, American lives. So please, I implore you, wear a mask. Do it for yourself. Do it for your neighbors. A mask is not a political statement, but it is a good way to start pulling the country together.
0: So is there a world in which Biden would put in place a national mask mandate? And if so, what would that look like? And to what extent would we expect that Americans, especially Americans in red states, would actually listen to that? I think
1: President-elect Biden sees the most effective way to get to universal masking by calling Republican and Democratic governors through the transition, which we know he plans to do, and convincing them, if they haven't already, to issue statewide mask mandates. I think he sees it as much more effective if people are hearing this from their state and local leaders, as opposed to a big federal mandate, which obviously millions of Americans would be hugely resistant to. And not only that, state and local leaders have much more authority to actually enforce a mask mandate because so much of this is dependent on the willingness of state and local officials enforcing it and actually making people do this. That alone is going to be really difficult. You have to change a lot of people's minds about how big a threat this virus is. And so much of this, until a vaccine is widely distributed, which is still several months away, if not longer, is dependent on changes in individual behavior.
0: I want to also talk about the role that a vaccine plays in this. We had Pfizer, the drug development company, announcing today that they have a vaccine that they believe to be more than 90% effective. So with a potential vaccine solution on the horizon, what role will this task force and will President-elect Biden play in that vaccine actually becoming a reality for Americans?
1: You know, when I spoke with people even before we were near Election Day, Biden advisors knew that one of their their biggest challenges right out of the gate was going to be distributing a vaccine that could be authorized by the end of the year. And... That's looking more like a reality today with the announcement from Pfizer that their vaccine candidate had more than 90 percent efficacy compared to a placebo, which is obviously great news. You saw their stock soar on the news. It's a really historic scientific development. There's never been a vaccine developed with this kind of speed. So they've been preparing for this. This is not a surprise to them because uh, health officials have been saying for months that they expected a vaccine to be authorized by the end of this year, which meant by the time they take office on January 20th. So they have a $25 billion plan for how they want to distribute this. We also reported that they're going to start negotiating with Congress for the end of year bill and for stimulus uh, negotiations to get money for their priorities. So, I mean, right out of the gate, this is going to be a huge logistical challenge for them.
0: How do you think President-elect Biden and this task force are going to navigate potential obstruction from the Senate on coronavirus relief bills and things that could help funnel the money where it needs to go in order to be able to put some of these strategies in place.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to note that while they do have very ambitious plans, there are political realities they have to contend with. You know, we see them already saying they're going to take a more aggressive posture and negotiations through the end of the year. Sort of modeled off the Bush-Obama transition in 2008, where the Obama transition did negotiate, uh, you know, with Congress during the transition so that when they took office in 2009, they had money to begin immediately addressing the recession that the country was in. That's sort of the model that they're looking at for this transition as well, that you negotiate some priorities with Congress, you take a more aggressive posture and try to get money for some of your priorities so that as soon as you take office, you can begin implementing them. You know, experts I spoke with noted that there's only so much you can do within the agencies.
0: But is that actually going to happen? Like, is there a sense that there is some receptiveness in the Senate to essentially give Biden a bunch of money to solve this problem? I think the
1: amount of money is definitely a big question right now. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did say just a couple of days after the election that he wanted to pass a stimulus bill before the end of the year. I'm sure, you know, they'll be far apart on how much money they think is needed for things like testing and vaccine distribution and personal protective equipment. But there does seem to be room to negotiate.
0: And, you know, thinking about what you said before about how divided Americans are about coronavirus right now, I think that embodies so much of the challenge of this problem and really many of the challenges that Biden is going to face when he gets into the White House, that that covid is something where he's having to negotiate with the Senate. It's something where he's going to have to negotiate with state governors, but also like really changing the personal behaviors of so many Americans, so many of which didn't vote for him. And it feels like this more than anything else really embodies how hard it will be for him to govern in such a divided country.
1: I think you're right. I think the way he needs to address coronavirus and convince people to change some of their behavior really is emblematic of a lot of the challenges he's going to have to undertake in his presidency The election was was obviously bitterly fought. You know, a lot of these states were extremely close. And the other challenge is that President Trump is still not conceding the election. So there will be a large number of Americans who simply refuse to accept the result. And President-elect Biden needs to find a way to convince them that they should listen to him. You know, a lot of what they've talked about is modeling good behavior, giving speeches, having a clear, consistent federal message on the virus. Mm -hmm. But that's really dependent on people, you know, one, recognizing him as the legitimately elected president, and two, trusting the information that he's giving them, trusting that the virus is a serious threat, one that warrants huge changes in individual behavior, you know, limiting large gatherings, not gathering with people indoors, things that People are frankly tired of, and I and and don't want to do anymore.
0: Yasmin Abutaleb reports on health policy for the Post. Matt Viser is a national political reporter. And now, one more thing about Vice President-elect Kamala Harris.
4: wrote about her stepping into history as the first woman to be vice president elect of the United States and also the first black person and also the first person who's Asian American.
1: Black women, Asian, white, Latina, Native
4: American women who throughout our nation's history have paved the way for this moment tonight. The thing that fascinated me about the rise of of Senator Kamala Harris is that she came to this point after such a long line of women who have sort of been slowly chipping away up this mountain. And I was really struck by the fact that when she joined the ticket... There was a lot made of the fact that she could make history. And then because this was such an incredibly tumultuous campaign, because the the counting of the ballots took so long, because there were so many other massive stories intervening in the midst of the campaign, that it almost seemed that we didn't really have time to even sort of pause and give deep consideration to really what her presence meant. Part of the reason why there was such an emotional outpouring after the race was called was because there were all of these really deeply rooted, deeply felt thoughts and memories and hopes that had just not really had a chance to see the light during the course of the campaign. I think people were feeling you know, just a multitude of things. I mean, the the first was simply, you know, to see this Black woman on stage at the center of it all. And so much conversation had gone into the fact that Black voters, particularly Black women voters, have been the bedrock of the Democratic Party and were so influential in particular in this race. And to see her standing there There was incredible amount of just vindication and celebration of all the hard work that black women do and don't receive the credit for, aren't acknowledged for.
1: Women who fought and sacrificed so much for equality and liberty and justice for all including the Black women who are often, too often, overlooked, but so often prove they are the backbone of our democracy.
4: Harris spoke very directly to little girls and and to little boys as well, essentially telling them that she was certain that she would not be certainly the last woman in that position but also telling them that they should dream big because she was proof that their dreams could be limitless and that there'd be people who were cheering them on. And And I, I think moments like that, of course, always resonate in terms of sort of the next generation and inspiring young people. But I think it was equally as important that she was speaking to, you know, her peers and, you know, and to women who are right now in the midst of their careers. It really is groundbreaking. And you don't stop needing that sense of encouragement of what is possible just because, you know, you've moved into your career or graduated from college, I think you you always need those reminders.
0: Robin Gavon is a senior critic at large for The Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the election and what this moment has to say about the American story, there is a new Amazon original podcast from The Post. It's called The Next Four Years, and it draws on the experience and insight of The Post's reporting staff and experts to retell the moments that define the 2020 election. In this series, reporter Eugene Scott tells the story of how we got here. And he unpacks what the outcome of the election means for the future of our divided country. You can listen to the next four years from The Washington Post for free, exclusively on Amazon Music. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.